This is Not Your Grandma's Bible Study, making critical biblical scholarship accessible and fun. Hi all, welcome to Not Your Grandma's Bible Study. I'm Jill and I'm not your grandma. On this episode, I sit down with another of my graduate school professors, Sharon Betsworth, and we discuss Luke 2, 41 through 52. In this passage, Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, and after his parents discover he's missing, he turns up in the temple learning from the teachers there. Sharon's research asks questions about this passage from a child-centric perspective, and you'll learn more about that as we go through our discussion. Before diving into the conversation, let me tell you a bit about Sharon. Above all, she is a kind and delightful human. If you ever have the opportunity to meet her or take a class with her, do not hesitate. She is Professor of Religion and Director of the Wimberley School of Religion at Oklahoma City University, my alma mater. She is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. She has studied at Princeton Theological Seminary. She has a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And she is the author of The Reign of God is Such as These, a Socio-Literary Analysis of Daughters in the Gospel of Mark, and Children in Early Christian Narratives. She is also a co-editor and contributor to the TNT Clark Handbook of Children in the Bible and Biblical World. I am so excited to have Sharon talk with me, and I hope you enjoy it. A quick disclaimer about the sound quality. This is my first time recording a virtual discussion, and I'm new to audio editing in general, in case you haven't noticed. So I did my absolute best. Tips, tricks, and tutorials can be sent to notyourgrandmapodcast at gmail.com. And I promise I'm learning and getting better every episode, but a virtual conversation added a new challenge to my already middling skills. Anyway, enjoy! Welcome, Sharon! Well, hi. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining me. So, all right. So we're going to do some exploration of Luke 2, 41 through, did you say 52? All the way to 52. the end? 52. That's right. And this is some research that you've been doing, particularly exploring children in the New Testament, correct? That's right. So I, I focus on children, especially in the Gospels, but I've also... Uh, worked on uh, children in Revelation and in some other parts of the New Testament, but I especially focus on the child characters that we find in the Gospels. And this is a relatively new sort of approach to biblical studies, correct? Yeah, it is. It's only been about 10 years that there's been a group of biblical scholars who have been focusing on the role of children the place of children in the ancient world, and we've developed a methodology that we, we refer to as childist interpretation. Some scholars prefer to use the term child-centered, but we've been not in any systematic fashion working through the Bible, but there's been a lot of work done on children in the Gospels, a fair amount of work done on children in the Pentateuch, and we're slowly working our way to other parts of the Bible. So yeah, but it is a relatively new approach. I think the Society of Biblical Literature launched the Children in the Biblical World section in 2008. Okay. Which is, I mean, when a section launches in the SBL, that's a pretty good indicator of there's enough interest and right. attention to that area for it to be worth asking other random people to participate in. Yeah. 
right, you know, right, do, exactly. do take this approach. So, so, right. Well, there's, I'm, there are surprisingly more children in, I think, especially in the gospels than people assume yeah, <laughs> would be there. And the, gos- and the gospel of Luke in particular has more children than the other gospels simply because it begins with the story of John the Baptist's birth and the story of Jesus' birth. Mm-hmm. And then we get the story of Jesus as a boy, 12 year old boy in the temple. And so even though Luke imports most of Mark's stories about children and Matthew replicates most of Mark's stories about children, we end up with more child material in Luke because of the infancy narratives and then some other material he adds. All right. And then uniquely, Jesus as an in well, I guess he's not technically an infant at this point, but as a young child, it feels apocryphal <laughs> like, <laughs> to me, well, yeah. but it's, it's in there. Right. It is. And so, I mean, the, the majority of the first two chapters of the gospel of Luke are Luke's own material stories that aren't found in Matthew, aren't found in Mark, aren't found in John. Though, if you look at the quote-unquote Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke side by side, you can see a core of the story. But this story of Jesus as a boy in the temple is unique to Luke's gospel. But as you discussed in a previous podcast, it does appear in the infancy gospel of Thomas, stories of Jesus' childhood. Um, Though Jesus is depicted a little bit more as a prodigy, a little bit more as a as a, you know, super kid. As a turd. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's a, he's a, he's a pill for sure. Yeah, he in that, really is. In he's, that story. Yeah, he's a little super kid in, uh, in Infancy Gospel of Thomas. So let's just, I guess, dive into the passage and... All right. Yeah. Well, the thing that makes this passage really interesting for readers of the Gospel of Luke, not only is it the only story of Jesus' childhood... But it really gives us a little bit of a glimpse into Jesus' childhood and into his family and what his family customs are. So it's really clear from the beginning of this story that Jesus' family followed the Jewish traditions, followed the Jewish festivals, participated in those festivals. And the way Luke writes the story, the family makes this annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, which was one of the three harvest festivals in the Jewish tradition at that time. And it was only required that adult men go to Jerusalem, but Luke tells us that his whole family goes, that Mary and Joseph, Jesus, and it seems as if a whole cadre of family and friends are are part of this group going to Jerusalem. And Jesus is 12 years old, which tells us he's reaching the age of responsibility, but he's still a child. Okay. Right. So the Mishnah, a later Jewish document, will say that boys reach the age of responsibility at 13 years old, and a year prior to that is a year of study and preparation. I think in the past, some scholars would say, well, is this like Jesus' bar mitzvah? But they weren't doing bar mitzvahs <laughs> right. then. But the point of 12 is, well, there's there's many reasons why Luke draws upon 12. The basic reason is to say he's still a child. He's nearing adulthood, but he's still a child. And we can look back into the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and find that people like Solomon are noted as 
doing incredible things when he was 12. Mm -hmm. Samuel started prophesying when he was 12. Even Josephus talks about how the Jewish historian talks about how advanced he was for his age at age 12. Well, Josephus (laughs) is just remarkably humble throughout. He he really is. uh, Um, No humbler man has ever lived, I think. Right, right. Um, so, th- so this, this story is, is rooted in the Jewish tradition of the, the pilgrimage festival of Passover. We learn that Jesus' family goes to that festival every year. The story also, as is true of the whole first two chapters of Luke, is very much rooted in the Jewish scriptures. So there's a lot of allusion, especially to the story of Hannah and her son mm-hmm. Samuel, in First Samuel in the Hebrew Bible. And so Mary and Joseph, just like Hannah and her husband Elkanah, go to the festivals, go make sacrifices and offerings at the temple. Hannah dedicates her son Samuel to the Lord, sort of in the same way that Mary is accepting of the call that God puts on Jesus' life. Samuel is actually raised in the temple. And of course, we we hear Jesus calling the temple late in this passage, his father's house, you know, so it's kind yeah. of like his home place, right? Right. <laughs> so, so there's, there's, uh, these very close connections between Hannah and Samuel and Mary and Jesus in this passage. Was the presenting him in the temple portion, was that common for all? Jewish males, or was that something particularly significant for Jesus? Or would every parent who could get their newborn son or young child to the temple would take him up there to sort of present him formally? Because that's the the preceding passage, right? Right. So the preceding passage is that they presented him to the Lord, and they made the offering. So the offering was required. But it's interesting because Luke says when the time came for their purification, according to Mm -hmm. the law of Moses, and according to the Jewish tradition, only the woman had to go through a purification ritual. The child didn't have to go through Mm -hmm. a purification ritual. And the woman made an offering, but not necessarily the child as well. Um, That's really interesting because it's the proto-gospel of James. That's Mary's upbringing. But whenever she becomes pregnant, they do essentially the Sota ritual. For right. The, for listeners who aren't aware, there's a whole episode on it. Um, <laughs> the Sota ritual is bonkers. But they right. do, they they have Joseph drink some of the water too. Like they have, it's it's a ritual prescribed in numbers that's specifically for women because the idea behind it is if she committed adultery, then essentially she'll abort the child. He obviously can't abort the child. He's not carrying the child. So that's really interesting that that gospel and then this here both are kind of bringing Joseph in on something that technically should have only been something Mary would have had to deal with. Right. That's really interesting. And, And I've been thinking about this a little bit lately. And one of the things that occurs to me is that in the, I believe in the Greek or Roman traditions, there was a tradition of the purification involving the infant as well as the mother. And so one of the things that we notice about Luke, a lot of biblical scholars believe that he was a Gentile. And so this story, as well as other places in the gospel, are, are written with that in mind, 
that it's not just a Jewish audience right. to whom Luke is writing. He's also writing to people who are familiar with Roman religious traditions and Greek religious traditions and, you know, the whole range. And so I think there's a variety of ways that he brings those traditions into the stories that appear to most of us as just being about Jewish traditions. Right. But when you realize, well, the infant wasn't purified in the Jewish tradition, well, then why does Luke say their purification? Yeah. You know, so it occurs to me that it could be Mary and Jesus rather than Mary and Joseph. Well, that's, what, the, I would, that, yeah, that's yeah, what I was so. thinking, Mary and Jesus. So, yeah. Interesting. Sorry to get off the passage of no, topic no, at hand. That's perfectly fine. Oh, so, okay. So the group of travelers right. component to it, because I think a lot of contemporary helicopter parents <laughs> uh-huh. are like, how in the world do you lose your son and not realize it for three days? <laughs> um, well, but, con- so how? Well, the contemporary example I like to use is... Say, and this isn't involves three days, but it gives you the idea. So say the family's at Disney World, and you're there with parents, kids, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, and maybe a couple of extra friends. And you're all ready to leave the park one day, and everybody just heads out, and nobody does a head count to see where every single kid is, right? right? And then all of a sudden you're like, hey, where's Johnny? And no, Johnny's not here. Johnny's not here. Johnny's not here. You know, and you go back to the park and you find Johnny in one of the stores. But everybody assumed Johnny was with somebody else. Right. right? So that's kind of the contemporary example. But I've taught this, I've taught this story to a group of seminary students. And in the group of seminary students, there was a man from Africa. And he was like, oh yeah, basically the whole village parents all the children. So, yeah, your kid could go off and be staying with somebody else for, you know, overnight or Mm. for some period of time. And, you know, you're not worried because, you know, they're somewhere within the village, you know. And so for him, he was just like, well, yeah, I mean, multiple people parent all of the children. And so, yeah, in, in, in the U.S. context where we're used to keeping our children fairly close by, it seems kind of odd. But in the ancient context where there was extended family and a whole variety of people that were parenting children, we could see how they would, you know, assume, oh, he's, you know, further up ahead. Elizabeth's got him. Yeah, with Elizabeth. Turns out she doesn't. Right, Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, right. And so they, they come back to Jerusalem. They find that he's in the temple. And this is interesting. After three days, they find him in the temple. And I always find it curious you know, if you read the biblical commentaries, they're always like, why three days? Well, we don't really know. And I'm like, why not three days? Other things happen in three days. Yeah. I'm like, oh, death to resurrection. But nobody wants you know. to, you know, like claim that. Um, That's funny, because I feel like a lot of commentators, they want to make everything link to the, you know, death and crucifixion right. and resurrection. But the one thing that might clearly, like, yeah, right. they're like, ah. That's, you know, lost, that's too lost, on the nose. <laughs> he was lost and now he's found. Yeah. But so it's interesting. So it says um, at verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. You know, but it's it's very much the scene of the student teacher 
question answer coming to understanding through dialogue, mm-hmm. right? And now we referenced the infancy gospel of Thomas, and there it it says that he was examining the teachers and that he was teaching them the points of the law. Yeah. And it says something kind of odd, like the law and the parables or something. Strange. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it is, it's weird. And the infancy gospel of Thomas is, I think if I recall my own argument about it, I think I argue that the author weaves these stories together using appropriate uses of schoolhouse violence to transition Jesus from student to teacher. And right. so, yeah, so he starts out as a student who doesn't need to learn anything and mm-hmm. like strikes his teacher dead and then brings him back to life or something and then ends up, you know, kind of being doing a one man show at the temple, telling them all everything they need to know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very weird things, apparently. Yeah. Man, Infancy Gospel Thomas is so fun. It's such a weird it's, it's a great such it's a, a weird great story. Text. It's a great text to to read alongside especially Luke. Yeah, so of course Mary's astonished, you know, and she you know, and I like the way she scolds him, child. Which is maybe why in the Gospel of John when she asks him to change the water into wine, he then says, woman. Woman. You yeah. know, <laughs> you know, maybe that's like, well, you call him child. So call him woman. Um, anyway, so child, why have you treated us like this? And he says, well, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I'd be here in my father's house? Or the Greek is a little bit closer to I'd be about my father's business, mm-hmm. right? I'm, you know, but it's this sense that Jesus has of his close and special relationship to God. Yeah. So already as a 12-year-old, he's aware that he has a special relationship with God that his mother doesn't yet fully understand. But then, importantly, it says he went back home with them to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And, you know, that's ultimately mm-hmm. how the child is supposed to be in the ancient world, right. right? Obedient to the parents. But Mary continues pondering these things and continues treasuring these things. So, I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating about this story is, as I mentioned, it not only clues us into some Jewish tradition, Jewish families did the pilgrimage festivals together, that they kept certain rituals together, but it also is very much in keeping with how children were involved in Greek and Roman religions, Mm -hmm. that children went through a variety of rites of passage in Greek and Roman religious traditions during infancy, transitions from childhood to adulthood. It's sort of their whole life was surrounded by different kinds of religious rituals. And there were special roles that children had in ceremonies and in festivals and in special occasions like weddings and funerals. Children participated in choirs, just as we're familiar with children doing today. Children were acolytes, you know, so helped the priest with special tasks, just as they were as they do today. One of the things I've, I've written about this is that Jesus is very much following the role of child in the Greco-Roman religious mm-hmm. traditions. And in those traditions, they favored children who were 12 or under, They favored children who had both parents living, and they favored children who were particularly from elite families. Okay, so two out of three ain't bad. Well, but I mean, for the the author of Luke, I mean, Jesus might not be elite, the family might not, but in terms of the the power and authority that Jesus holds, that's Mm -hmm. 
that's elite in that way, even though it's not by Roman standards of right. position and status and right. money. But Jesus is the hero of this story and yep. the most important character in the story for the author. And so it's kind of like two and a half, I'd say, then. Yeah, out of three. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the Greeks and the Romans had this sense that children had a special relationship to God, that they had special insights into the world of the divine. And we can see that, you know, that, yeah. that Jesus seems to have. A, a different insight into the world of the divine than his parents have at the moment. That's really interesting because that's definitely not how people treat young people in churches, especially right, today. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yell or dumb, yeah. the adults are yeah, talking exactly. kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's even a sense of at 37 with a PhD in biblical studies, older folks in a church are like, well, that was really cute. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. that was four months of research right, <laughs> and exactly. hard work. Yeah, <laughs> I did yeah. have one person tell me one time, well, you could have just told me like the the moral of whatever. And I just looked at him and said, well, I had to fill an hour. Like, I know I could have just told you, but right, right. <laughs> I didn't, you funny. didn't have to take me on the journey. I actually <sighs> did. I had to fill an hour. I was asked to speak for an hour. So yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. That's you didn't have to time. come. <laughs> so anyway. I digress. So I always kind of like to do the so what of, uh, especially of looking at children in the gospel. Right. So a few things about this story in relationship to the rest of the gospel of Luke. So this story is, is particularly important because it connects the baby Jesus, whom Christians celebrate at Christmas, mm -hmm with the adult Jesus who is raised from the dead, whom Christians celebrate at Easter, right? Right. So it's it's a story that fills in that gap. So we don't just go from baby to man dying on the cross right. with nothing in between. But this story also really foreshadows several parts of the gospel. It's sort of Luke's precursor of what's coming. So... Jesus and his family come from Nazareth to Jerusalem for the Passover, mm -hmm. and then at the end of Jesus' life, he'll come again from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover. In this story, he's listening to the teachers. He's asking them questions. When he gets back to Jerusalem, he'll again engage the teachers in the temple, but he'll be the one teaching them. His parents don't understand what his words are about here, what he means by his in his father's house. When he's a child, his disciples aren't going to understand what he means when he says, I must suffer and die and be raised again. You know, Jesus is 12 years old. He's specifically referred to as a 12-year-old child. And later in the gospel, he'll heal a 12-year-old child. Yeah. You know, and Luke specifically uses the exact same word for child in both stories. In this story, it happens to be masculine so it means boy in the other story it happens to mean be feminine so it means girl but he's using that same term pice that Greek word for child in both stories so i think that's a really important piece that we see that mm -hmm. this story really links us from the infancy stories into the rest of the gospel what's interesting about that term pais is it also can mean slave and so right is the motif of slavery used in Luke to talk about discipleship in any way? Like Paul, I mean, Paul uses it 
pretty regularly to talk about being a slave to the gospel, things like that. Um, Does Luke do that, or is it pretty clear that this wouldn't be some kind of double entendre? Luke tends to use... Well, there is a story in Luke in which Jesus heals the slave of the centurion. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because Luke, as narrator, calls that character a doulos, Mm -hmm. a servant or slave. But the centurion refers to that character as a pice, as slave or child. And so some scholars have questioned whether that's actually a slave child being healed. So I I did part of my dissertation on the Matthean version of that, where mm-hmm. the, the enslaved man is exclusively called pice. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of debate about the centurion's motives and all of that. And I argue that the man is enslaved and that the centurion's motives don't matter. Like he's just trying mm-hmm. to get his tool fixed. But one of the things that my my research on the language around Pais did teach me was that it was also a derogatory way to talk about an adult male slave. Yeah, definitely. And so similarly to American South calling an adult male enslaved person boy, it's, right. I mean, it's essentially carrying that kind of patronizing Right. Blech. Definitely. So, Definitely. Yeah. so in, anyway, that's just a side note about the centurion. Because I, I would be wondering, I know Luke goes out of his way in that passage to really make the centurion mm-hmm. be sympathetic. I wonder if that's just one element of really reflecting what the culture was actually like, which is it's highly unlikely that centurion cared about his slave. It's mm-hmm. very rare that that happened. That's a passage for another day. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep digressing. I'm sorry. That's okay. The... Sort of the the final so what point that I like to think about with the story of Jesus as a boy in the temple is what does it say to the Christian understanding of Jesus as divine? Mm-hmm. So by the time Christians reach the fourth century and the Nicene Creed is being drafted, and the Nicene Creed is very clear that Jesus is... God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Mm-hmm. Right? So they're very clear. 100% human, 100% divine. However, however that math works. <laughs> right. However that math works. I usually think of Mark's gospel as really promoting the humanity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, John's gospel much more is interested in the divinity of Jesus. And Matthew and Luke are chronologically right in between Uh, And they're working, kind of trying to work it out. And so I always like to start from the end of the Gospel of Luke and work our way back to this story and say, well, was Jesus the incarnation of God only after the resurrection? Hmm. Or was Jesus the incarnation of God after the crucifixion? Or was Jesus the incarnation of God when he was being tortured by the soldiers. Right. Was Jesus God in the flesh in the Garden of Gethsemane? Was he God in the flesh when he's preaching and healing and teaching? Is he God when he chooses all of his disciples and when he's tempted by Satan? Is he God in the flesh as a child? Right. And I have one of my uh, colleagues in, in the Children in the Biblical World group who wrote a a monograph on the infancy gospel of Thomas, writer Askert, refers to Jesus as true God and true child. Hmm. And and it does, this passage does beg that question. 
you know, when does Jesus become divine? Yeah. Luke, I feel like is kind of tricky. Mark feels like it's definitely the baptism. Like there's like a clear cut moment of, and for John, like before anything else was ever even imagined to be thought of, Jesus was who Jesus was. Right. But Luke, I mean, I think, is it Yoder who kind of argues that this whole, the whole gospel is Jesus kind of walking this fine line of deciding what Messiah he's going to be. Is he going to be that militant, take up the sword Messiah that the disciples expect him to be or think that he's Mm going to be? Or is he going to be, take this other path that's going to take him to the cross? And that even as far as to Gethsemane, you're still seeing that tension play out in which path Jesus is going to choose to take of, let this pass from me. Luke's the gospel with the cutting off of the Mm -hmm. soldier's Mm -hmm. ear, right? And even in that moment, Jesus choosing, you know, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword, like making that very clear of, guess that's not the path I'm taking. I'm choosing this way. So I feel like Luke really holds that tension Mm-hmm. all the way through of like, right. there's a right. lot at stake for what Jesus decides when he decides. And it's been at stake even as young as 12 years old. Right. So, right. Yeah. That's a very, very good point. Maybe I should read Luke more often. <laughs> <laughs> I should get in here more. Yeah. Oh, Luke's a, a great gospel writer. I mean, he just, so much nuance, so much nuance to yeah. all he writes. Now, the author of Luke is presumably also the author of Acts. Yeah. How many children pop up in Acts? Is there a lot? Are there a lot of children that pop up there? No. For some odd reason, Luke has lots of children and lots of women in the gospel and almost no women and children in Acts. Interesting. Um, and maybe that is because Acts is not really, as I like to tell my students, it's not really the history of the early church. Right. We don't find out how the church started in Egypt. We don't find out how the church started in India, which traditionally is is by means of Thomas, right? Mm -hmm. And Egypt traditionally by means of Mark. It's really, is Peter's version of the Christ community going to win out, or is Paul's version of the Christ followers going to win out? That's really the saga of Peter and Paul. So we only find a few children in Acts. There's the boy Eutychus, who is sitting on an upper level window. That's right. Uh, listening to Paul, and uh, whose name actually might be a, a slave name, and mm-hmm. or a freed person's name. And he falls asleep while Paul is preaching, and he falls out the window, and he dies. Such a and vote of Paul, confidence for Paul. I know. <laughs> and Paul goes out on the street and brings him back to life. Well, you got to do and something then, if you're going to be that big of a snooze. you got to... Show up somehow, Uh, Paul. Yeah. And then there's a couple of characters referred to as enslaved women or enslaved girls, the the term enslaved female, which might mean a younger person, might not. So Rhoda, Mm -hmm. the young slave, slave woman in Mary's house, Mary, mother of John Mark, might be a young person. There's a young slave who prophesies and she's making Paul upset and Paul casts out the spirit that allows her to do her divination. That gets Paul into trouble. We're gonna talk. I'm going to have to do an episode on just Paul's attitude and acts. Right, right. And then there's uh, Philip's daughters who are sent right. out a sp- spirit of prophecy. Yeah. But those are all young people probably, but we don't really see 12 and under children, though presumably they were part of the church, of the you know, house churches. Right, 
Right. And it's weird to think that for us, 13, 14, 15, that's still children. I know when I was that age, I didn't think I was still a child, but I was right. in our right. particular context. But at that age, I mean, a lot of these young girls were being married off and right. Right. starting to breed. Um, for yeah. I don't want to add any romance to these marriages. I have a feeling most 14-year-olds were not interested in their 45-year-old suitor. But right. yeah, so childhood really does... It's not just a matter of this arbitrary age of, mm-hmm. well, 13, you're a man, 13, you're a woman. It's really a matter of, right. okay, now go get married, young ladies, and right. boys get right. to school, like start learning a trade and really kind of doing some of this yeah. stuff. They yeah. had a little bit more luxury to live a little more freely. Although I, I would be curious, I don't, I know that's probably true more of Roman and urban centers and definitely mm-hmm. elite males. I wonder what age men married in sort of more rural settings and mm-hmm. Jewish. Was it still around mid-20s? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, men tended to marry in their mid-20s, women tended to marry in their mid-30s. I mean, mid, sorry, mid-teens. <laughs> um, you know, so there was... And this, remarry in their 30s, probably? Right, exactly. Because they're widowed by that 20s, point or something, so... Remarry in their 30s, right. Well, this has been really fun to talk about. I forget about this passage sometimes in the biblical text, I I think about it so connected with the infancy gospel of Thomas and Mm -hmm. that crazy journey that I forget that, oh yeah, Luke also used the story and contextualized it very differently. I mean, I think Jesus is a little bit precocious, Mm -hmm. although his parents, they might've been stressed that he stayed in Jerusalem, but maybe they didn't think that he was talking out of line or anything like that to them. But, you know, Jesus is recognizing his own vocation a young enough age where there's some continuity of mm-hmm. his characterization. I do. I like how you put it. It kind of fills in that gap of right. we're very comfortable with little baby Jesus at Christmas mm-hmm. and dead Jesus and resurrected Jesus at Easter. But this whole conceptualization of his having a childhood and like diapers mm-hmm. that mom needed to deal with and like right. skinned knees and, you know, fights right. with his siblings or like that's, what was all of that like? And this doesn't really give you much into that, but it does give you kind of a sense of his relationship with his parents and sort of his sense of self mm-hmm. kind of midway through. Exactly. And he probably didn't just go into the temple that day and be like, huh, I guess I know more than everybody. So <laughs> you could assume by reading this that Luke is wanting you to kind of fill in that he's being trained into this a little bit in his family and that that training obviously continues as he ages into a man. And so anyway, yeah, this has been really fun. So yeah, it's a great passage. I love this story. Yeah. And I really like the work that's being done in childist or child centric Mm -hmm. readings. I think it's really, really interesting in part because kind of what you said, especially in these religious contexts, if children weren't quite as ignored as they are in our society, I mean, I think in our society, I work in a daycare like during Mm -hmm. the day now, and so they're hard to ignore. Right. <laughs> so there's right. like certainly an amount of like all the attention is on them, but they're not taken seriously, I guess, is maybe mm-hmm. they're, they're mm-hmm. funny. They're cute. They're, you know, they do dumb things inexplicably, but right. they also, they're little people sort of developing who they are. And so to mm-hmm. bring attention to children in the biblical text, I think is maybe a helpful one is just useful because. Right they are in here for a reason. And maybe if we took it seriously, there would be some insights that we could gain 
to make all of us better people or our churches more equitable. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I just, I just like the direction that that's going and really looking forward to seeing what some of the work that gets done in the, the, like the histories in the Mm -hmm. Hebrew Bible. I think like little kid Kings and stuff. (laughs) So. Right. Definitely. This seems like a lot of work there. So, well, thank you so much for taking time with me to, to do this. So you are very welcome. I enjoyed our conversation today. In the event that anybody's interested in learning more about your work or anything like that, what books might they look into or anything along those lines? Two books that I would mention. One I wrote a few years ago called uh, Children and Early Christian Narratives, and that discusses the children in the four canonical gospels, as well as the infancy gospel of Thomas, as well as the proto-gospel of James, which, as we mentioned, are stories of Mary's childhood. So that gives a good overview of each gospel, broadly speaking, and then focuses in on the specific passages about children, as well as giving a chapter on children in the ancient world. And then there was a book that I co-edited that came out in 2019 called Children in the Bible and Biblical World, and I co-edited that with Julie Faith Parker. And that's a series of essays on different parts of the Hebrew Bible. I believe we have at least one intertestamental article, several chapters on different portions of the New Testament, and then a couple articles on the Christian Apocrypha. And so it just gives a variety of articles. But what's really helpful, the two very helpful things about that volume, is that there's at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible section and the beginning of the New Testament section is each has a chapter on who are children in the ancient Near East and where do we find Mm -hmm. them? You know, who are children in the Greco-Roman world and where do we find them? You know, that kind of gives us that, well, how do we do this work of trying to figure out where the children are in the text? Right. And then it just has an extensive bibliography for those people who like that kind of thing. I do. <laughs> so those would be the two sources I'd uh, point to right off. I also, uh, I wrote a chapter in my dissertation on the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 mm-hmm. and yes. her daughter. Listeners, if you're interested, last week's episode was that, or two weeks ago, whenever this one gets posted. Anyway, I've already posted it. <laughs> but I used a lot of information from your book and from the the edited volume to, oh, okay, for those great. bibliographies, because it was really super helpful to get a sense yeah. of how people were talking about this daughter, which the assumption sort of historically was that she was just like five. <laughs> like, I, that's kind of how I, they all seemed to read her as not a baby, but not a teenager or anything. Right. And so I chose to read her as an infant. Uh-huh. And then I chose, I did another reading of her as an adult daughter. Right. Um, who was taking yeah, care of her really, mother. And so yeah, there really isn't any indication in the text. Yeah. That's she's, great. she's very, she's just, my daughter is severely possessed. Well, a mother can be concerned about her child at any age. So right. what if we right. break out of that idea that she's just like five or, right. you know, toddler and that she's newborn or that she's mm-hmm. an adult woman who's mm-hmm. taking care of the mother and needs some help. So right. uh, your work has been tremendously helpful on that. Thank you. You're welcome. Very welcome. So, all right. Well, again, thank you for for joining us and hopefully maybe we can have you on again sometime. That would be great. And hopefully I'll get to see you in person sometime. Yeah. (laughs) What a great conversation. I certainly had a good time and a big thank you 
to Sharon for joining me, and a big thank you to you for listening. Be sure to leave me a nice five-star review wherever you listen. It helps with audience reach and podcast visibility in the algorithms. Well, grandmas, stay safe, stay healthy, and love your neighbor. Until next time, amen and see you.